Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom, welcome back. Hey, Joe. How are you today? Good. So today, you know, we've talked a lot about innovation and disruption uh, and new faces coming into um, the business of sports. Today, we're going to combine both. We're going to talk to someone who was there I don't want to say at the beginning of sports television, but certainly had a big piece in what was launched, um, uh, which is now Bristol, Connecticut, but also is someone who's been around the innovation space to this day and is continuing to find new ways to help tell the story through the business of sports. Our guest today is Bill Rasmussen, the founder of ESPN, author, entrepreneur, business person, someone who has really kind of helped shape business that we know today and definitely business into the future. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Joe. Tom, good morning. How are you? Great. Bill, Bill the first thing we wanted to ask, and a lot of our um, listeners are students from around the world, um, can you just kind of really take us through the first couple steps of, of the idea of ESPN? People may not know about the napkin story and everything else. Uh, and then uh, we're going to take it and kind of run to today and what you're doing today and kind of the innovative, disruptive world of sports. So why don't you take us back to the beginning, and then we'll quickly come ahead to today and all the things we want to get covered in, you know, the next 35 minutes. I had my life disrupted, really, because uh, on Memorial Day weekend 1978 really was the beginning of what turned out to be ESPN. I was fired by the Whalers after they had a bad season. You know how that goes in the sports business. They don't. We never skated a minute for the Whalers, but they fired the entire front office. But be that as it may, cable television had been something that we had been working on to try and get some Whaler games on TV. Cable television in Connecticut at that time was, believe it or not, there were only five operating systems, and the largest system had 9,500 subscribers. So we were talking about what we might do, uh, and all of a sudden I was fired and without a job. And just by sheer coincidence, I was scheduled to do a TV one-hour recap of what the Whaler season had been and what the upcoming 78-79 Whaler season would look like. So I called the producer of the show and said, you know, don't think you want to talk to me because they just fired me. And he said, well, you got to come down and talk to me anyway. we got to do something. I don't have anybody else to talk to. So I went to talk to him, and we batted a couple of ideas around, and the University of Connecticut had a pretty good basketball team back in those days, even before the Big East was invented. And we started talking about maybe we can do some things here in the state with Connecticut and Wesleyan and Yale and Fairfield and all of the universities and do something with cable TV. Well, we called the cable TV provider at those points, uh, at that point, of uh, the way they got their programming was through AT&T, long lines same way the networks did things. So we called AT&T Snetco in Connecticut, asked them what it would take to put all these five cable systems together so we could do our little little mini network, if you will, around Connecticut. And he said they would have to do a survey and it might take as much as 18 months before they could come forward. Well, I had just been fired. I had some kids in school, obviously. 18 months didn't sound so good. And so we began talking to the cable operators themselves. And one of them said, you know, I don't know very much about this, but there's a new thing coming along. We think we're going to be able to do programming by satellite. I couldn't even spell satellite, but that was okay. One T or two T's and one L or two L's, you know how. And 
and uh, he said, "Let me get the boys together, and we'll we'll decide what we maybe we can help you." We we like the idea of getting programming for all five kinetic so all five kinetic cable systems. So he had everybody hosted a meeting in Plainville, Connecticut, and it was one of the funniest meetings I've ever attended because. It turns out they didn't know any more than we did. They had heard the word satellite. Some of them said, well, you can buy all of New England. Another one said, no, you can buy everything east of the Mississippi. Another one said, you can buy afternoons only because somebody else, HBO, has the nighttime. So finally the host of the meeting put his hand up. He said, wait a second, we don't know any more than Bill does. He said, I've got a number for RCA in New York. Why don't you give him a call? So I thought, well, let's see. I've just been fired. I'm a little guy from the south side of Chicago, and why not? call the giant in, in uh, Manhattan, and I called. I suddenly realized, and this is a lesson that I've taken, and it worked as we went through ESPN as well. You can pick up the phone and ask anybody a question. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? They're going to hang up on you, or they're going to say, may I, I can help you, or they're going to say, this is a great idea. Well, I called RCA. The operator didn't hang up on me, and she said, let me put you through to the satellite SATCOM division. The gentleman by the name of Al Paranello said, how can I help you? So they didn't hang up on me. And when he said, how can I help you? I told him what we had in mind. And we were looking to distribute some uh, programming, sports programming via satellite. He said, where are you in Connecticut? I'll be up in the morning. And he came up to Plainville, Connecticut the next day and told us that they were selling two hours and five hours and three hours and afternoon hours. And they said, we have one tariff item that nobody has ever even talked about. It's 24 hours a day. It's a five-year contract, $34,167 a month for five years. We, obviously, we didn't have any money to, to do that, but we, we thanked him, and then we started talking about it. My son, Scott, was in the meeting, and he and I talked about it after they left, after Al Paranello left, and he said, Wow, let's see. We've they've never done this. And, uh, first of all, there was a bit of an argument, or not an argument, a discussion before I left about thirty-four thousand one hundred sixty-seven dollars a month. That turned out to be eleven hundred and some odd dollars a day when it was twelve hundred and fifty dollars for five hours at night. So Scott challenged him and said that can't be right. And he said, No, that's the tariff. It's eleven hundred a day, eleven hundred whatever it was change. So the next morning, after thinking about it all night, we called New York. We still had no money. We hadn't figured that part out yet. We called Al back and said, we'll take one of those things. And he said, one of what? I didn't know the thing we were taking was a transponder. But if we hadn't asked the questions, we never would have gotten that far. And he said, it's a transponder. We'd love to We'd love to work with you. Uh, how are we going to pay for it and so on? We'll talk about all of that later. So we, we figured, okay, we had the satellite. And we called a press conference for June 25th. I remember the date specifically i had known obviously a lot of the media people through the working with the whalers and having been on television in the region for a number of years and so on june 25th we told everybody we were going to start this crazy network we were going to do sports around the clock we were going to do football college football which we didn't know what the ground rules were with the ncaa but that's okay we told them we were going to do that we knew we could do basketball we knew we could do baseball and all the other sports and on july 8th Barely five weeks or six weeks after I was fired, we incorporated ESPN at Hartford, Connecticut. And as they say, the rest is history. We just ran as hard as we could. We found many interesting things along the way. When you start to talk about an idea, a lot of people say, gee, you know, that might be a good idea or it might not be a good idea. But RCA happened to think it was a really good idea. 
And unknown to us, they had been looking for someone, anyone, to come to them with an idea that would be viable 24 hours a day. There was some question about throughout the industry as whether or not that was going to be viable throughout 24 hours a day. But we uh, told everybody we had statistics. <laughs> of course, we didn't have any statistics. But we said, you know, there are at least a million people watching television in the middle of the night all the time. Every hour of the day, there are at least a million. Even in, even in New York at 4 in the morning, somebody's watching TV. And so then from that point on, then we set out to discover how many sports we could get to come to our our venture, and that was an interesting an interesting adventure indeed because the, everybody said it wouldn't work. Everybody said nobody's going to watch after 11 o'clock at night. They're going to watch news at 11. Johnny Carson doesn't go to bed. They're not going to watch sports. But we didn't believe that, and we continued to talk to the NCAA and others. And between the time that I was fired on uh, Memorial Day weekend 78 and March 1st, 1979, we had gotten a, an agreement with RCA for the satellite. We signed our first cable operator. Our first advertiser, Anheuser-Busch, signed the biggest advertising commitment in cable up to that point. And on March 1st, we signed an agreement with the NCAA. So literally in about nine months, the whole thing came together, all because we just kept picking up the phone and calling people and saying this is going to be the greatest thing ever to hit the sports world. And other than people saying, why Bristol, Connecticut? Uh, it all came through, and people to this day say, why Bristol, Connecticut? Now everybody knows. So, Bill, just back up for one second, because obviously back then you did not know that you would be launching what would become one of the most iconic businesses and business names in the history of American media. How did you come up with the name ESPN? Well, it was, that's an interesting story. We, wanted to, we really didn't want to be ESPN. We wanted to be SPN, Satellite Programming, uh, Sports Programming Network. But a friend in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who was the distributor for um, Ted Turner's Superstation out of Atlanta, had already uh, leased a transponder for a couple of hours a day and come up with the name Satellite Program Network. So we couldn't use SPN. He was already advertising as SPN. He was doing some midday programming on it. So we were uh, watching television one night, and the Connecticut uh, what was it? Connecticut Natural Gas had an energy-saving program. And they had an ad that showed ESP floating around the earth with their energy-saving program. And we called the agency and asked them if we could use that video and the ESP, we thought that would be a kind of an interesting thing, and then we would add an end to it, and we'd begin to talk, think about it uh, a little bit later. And the agency gentleman we talked to was a gentleman by the name of Peter Fox who said, I'll tell you what, if I, if I bring you that video and you can use it, you have the releases from Connecticut Natural Gas, I want to go to work for you. And I, so I said, well, if you bring it, you're hired. He called me the next morning and said, when do I start? And so we took that. That one, that was the only anim, piece of animation or any video that we had. It was extremely difficult and expensive to do animation back in the 70s. And as a result, we took that and we we saw the E and we said, what are we going to do with that? And we finally just said, it's going to be entertainment. And then we added the word uh, sports, obviously, programming network. 
And uh, wow. that's how we that's how we went off to our first cable show. We had a little ten by ten booth, and we had a, a little five minute video, and we had people lined up all around the booth throughout the entire show, wondering what this was all about. And I'd say at least ninety percent of them said, "We really love the idea, but it's never going to work." And that's that was just what we faced all along until we finally, even getting financing, people told us it wouldn't work. We went to several major financial sources, including Taft Broadcasting, which was huge back in the day. And uh, they said, not only will this idea not work, but cable TV won't even be around in a few years. So we appreciate your coming, and thank you very much, and have a nice day. Uh, But cable operators finally started to hear the message. And and, uh, one of the things, of course, as we all know today, cable television and, and live streaming, there's a lot of advertising. Uh, special local advertising and part of our pitch when we went back in 1978 and 79 to cable operators was we'll give you some local availabilities and you can sell you know joe's pizza and the local automobile dealership or whoever it might be and i remember and this is one lesson that i learned early on just keep talking and keep asking questions and, and no matter what they say you have an answer for them and one day i was startled when I was talking about those local availabilities, the gentleman I was talking to said, why would I want to do that? Well, I'd have to hire somebody. I'd have to hire somebody to go out and sell that advertising. So I wow. said, I said, and this was probably irreverent and it was probably very poor taste, but I said to myself, you know, he's got to be kidding me. I said, well, here's an idea. He sells 100, you give him 10, and you keep the other 90. Oh, <laughs> he said, now there's an idea. And this this was the general manager of a cable system in Denver, uh, Colorado. That's was, great. That's uh, there. There was this. There were so many things that had to had to happen, but the biggest and most difficult thing was to get to the cable operators, who at that point were just they were really just a transmitting agent, who who uh, took a program down from you know AT and T long lines or whoever it might be. And rebroadcast it, and they were at, in those days. The programming, uh, the uh, cable fees were six, eight, nine, ten dollars a month. And here we were coming along. We were going to disrupt. They they had this nice cash flow, and they had their all of their their performers and showed them how they made money just by redistributing a signal. And they really didn't have to work very hard at it. And yeah. so here we so came no. along and said, we're going to do all of this good stuff for you. And you can make a lot more money. And they finally got the message. Right. And, Bill, on the other side of the ledger, when you guys were sitting around looking at what must have been a very daunting programming schedule once things got going, how did you map out your plans to to reach out to attract and close uh, rights holders and content company, you know, the the content uh, players in sports to to build up the portfolio? Well, the the first one, obviously, that we went after was the NCAA because – Mm-hmm. There were to to do 24 hours a day. You have to come up with 8,760 hours of uh, programming a, a year. That's just the way it is. You have to 8760 is the magic number. And we had come up with this crazy idea of a half hour, nothing but sports news show called Sports Center, that also people said was not going to work because big three networks do it all the news right around 6:30 at night. ABC, NBC, and CBS had had their nightly news, and they had 93% of the audience. And so my answer to that was, well, who has the other 7%? That's where we'll start. 
And, of course, as you know, today the networks don't have anywhere near that percentage of viewership with all of the options available. Mm-hmm. But the the NCA was the key, and then we had some peripheral programming. The people were looking. We had Canadian, foot, uh, Canadian football. We had Australian rules football. Um, we had boxing early on. Uh, kickboxing was one of the shows. They were all kind of the, the fringe things, but people were thirsty for an opportunity to to display their to show their wares, to show the programming that they had. And pretty soon we had people inventing sports coming to us. And one of my very favorites is a gentleman called and he said, "We have to meet because I have a great programming idea for you, and we want to talk about rights fees and, and get this started as quick as we can." And I said. Great. What's you know? I'm, I'm, I didn't have any idea what he was talking about. He said, "Our we have a New York City rooftop tennis league." <laughs> I said, "You have a what?" <laughs> and I'm, I might be insulting wow. somebody by saying that. I had no idea what it was. He said, "What what what kind of rights we can we expect from that?" And I said, "None." <laughs> that was the end of that one. But really, uh, obviously, once we got started, we learned a lot of intriguing rules. The NCAA did not, in fact, control any regular season programming. We had to go conference by conference by conference and work out deals with each of the conferences, first for basketball. And then there was no live football allowed in those days because the ABC, NBC, and CBS and the NCAA had locked up contracts, which were later deemed in 1984 to be uh, an antitrust violation, and it was the decision of Judge Bursiaga in the Denver district, uh, I don't know which which one it is, seven maybe, that actually made the decision, went all the way to the Supreme Court and was upheld uh, on behalf of the people bringing the suit and the antitrust forced the networks to, uh, and forced the NCAA to let us go in and start doing live football. And when we started doing live football in 1984 it really exploded and today you know back then before before we were able to do live football there were r- roughly 25 football games a year uh they if you couldn't remember those afternoons some days you'd get a double header and so on college football and they were always the same teams texas and oklahoma ucla and usc and michigan and notre dame and so on in 1984, the floodgates opened, and I think today ESPN alone does over 450 football games a year. So it's uh, it was a case of selling each of the – we had to go to each of the individual conferences to get the college football. And then it didn't take much after that. We had also gone to the professional leagues. I remember meeting with Pete Rozelle, the NFL, and – his comments ringing in my head to this very minute, and he listened very intently and said, "Not today, Bill, but someday." Hmm. And you can wow. imagine how I fe- you can imagine how I felt when Monday Night Football in 2005 was awarded the ESPN. Someday had really arrived at that point. Hmm. Wow. So let's talk. About, you touched on a whole bunch of things, content, uh, platforms that won't survive, skeptics. Um, acquiring uh, programming, the, the kind of plethora of programming. And that was then. But they're the same topics, Bill, that seem to come up now, only in different, uh, with different platforms, one of which is streaming, which you're, you're very much involved with now. How, when, you look at the land, when you look at the landscape now, how much has it changed? And 
how has the business that you have now going to help move things along um, for consumers today? Well, clearly the advent, when we started, we had no computers. Uh, the Internet hadn't been invented. We had no email. Uh, we were really doing, uh, we were right back into the primitive days of television when I first started. I mean, it was it was kind of scary. We had big tapes. Uh, we had one-inch reels and half-inch reels of tape that we had to put up. And uh, it was, we didn't even have fax machines when we started. I can't believe all the things that have happened uh. over time. But. As soon as the technology uh-huh. caught up, technology is what's driven everything. Is uh, there's no question about it. Uh, when the, when first it was the computer, and then it was what we can do with the computer, and then this graphics improved, and and one thing led to another, and HD, and uh, internet, email, streaming. Uh, as each one has come along, it's opened up another opportunity to do things. And today, I would hesitate to guess, but I would think that among the classes that you you teach at Columbia and schools around the uh, around the country, there are literally thousands and thousands of opportunities for young people to do whatever they want to do: streaming or podcasts. Or uh, I don't I don't see a lot of people. A lot of people are not calling me these days saying, "How can I get an interview to be uh, a sportscaster on ESPN?" That, those there was a time when everybody would say, "Oh, that, that was the goal." They wanted to be mm-hmm. a Sports Center anchor because Chris Berman and and Bob Lee and all the rest, you know, Dan Patrick, they were all there, and they were the, they were the big guys. That doesn't mm-hmm. happen anymore. They don't have to do that anymore. They can set up in front of their own computer and do their own thing, and they're all looking for ways to have the next big idea. And and I applaud them for that. Many many students. I, I, I one gentleman who called me, he's not a student. He's actually a, an ex-Marine and an airline pilot and all of that. And he has his, he set up his own business on the side because he's interested in sports and he's interested in looking at new and innovative ideas and he's inviting people to come and talk to him and do all those kinds of things. With the technology today, every single person is an really has the opportunity to be an, an instant uh, an instant business, I guess. If they find the right niche that people are looking for, they can they can do some pretty amazing things. So I think as we've gone into streaming, we continue to look for new markets. And as we're talking with our new hometown networks, uh, the new markets are high school sports. Uh, how many high schools, colleges can afford can afford to do uh, streaming and so on with different students with different uh, activities, whatever it may be. But what about the high school kids? That You know, high school budgets are cramped. They can't go out and buy a video suite to come in and produce all of their games. They don't know about selling advertising and all of that sort of stuff. So we have come up with, someone came to me with an idea, and it's, we, we kid about it, it's a remote truck in a uh, an airline carry-on bag. It's one camera, it's one microphone, and it's one little magic black box that you literally can put into a, a suitcase and, and it's carry-on. You can carry it on an airplane. Just put the wheels to the back and close the door and away you go. And the the 
capabilities of this one single camera, and of course you can add two and three more cameras as well, to do uh, a basketball game, for example, including replay scoreboards and, and everything else, costs, uh, depending on how many you do, you get the cost down under $200 a game and do live streaming around the world. So we think that there's a great market among high schools. There are over 18,000 high school basketball teams in the country, uh, even more football teams, men's and women's. Uh, you can do it for soccer, lacrosse, tennis. It's just a, it's a huge, huge segment of the market. ESPN has tried to do some of that uh, a little bit in the past. Uh, there are many people who are looking at streaming to do different things, but we think we have a niche of, with the high school kids and the reception so far has been has been very good. People, uh, we've done dem- a lot of demonstrations on both coasts. Uh, there are many, many applications for it. And if you think about high school, where else can you take it? You can take it to the rec leagues in the cities. You can take it to the, you know, men's softball league or the women's softball. You can go anywhere because if you can do a if you can do a game for a hundred dollars a night, certainly somebody can afford to pay that and. They get what they want. They're playing on television, and they're you can do you can do. Uh, I suspect you could do uh, race car racing uh, racing around the country. There are thousands of small race tracks. Yeah, pretty around much the pretty much anything anything you can think of. You can do non sports productions with theater and music and and, and the like. I mean, sure. that's why it's such a fascinating time. But Bill, let me ask you this: because you you know, hometown networks and and others in that category of kind of uh, facilitating user-generated content for uh, for environments such as high schools that typically don't get quote produced is is covering the production side of the agenda. What are your feelings about distribution? Because that's really where the choke points are hitting right now, really hard because it's obviously so highly disrupted with um, opportunities now in distribution that which which are which are obviously quite manifold right now, but such a concentration of power and activity on the third-party social platforms for distribution because those groups of potential fans and viewers have already kind of assembled and identified themselves as being a good fan base for that produced content. So what are, you advi- what, what are your kind of thoughts on that generally, and what are you advising your, your hometown network's clients to do on the distribution side? Well, one of the, one of the obviously we're also looking for major involvement from major corporations as sponsors or anybody that wants to reach the high school market. But you, you, it goes beyond the high school market because all of the high schoolers that are playing uh, have parents and grandparents all around the country. Mm-hmm. So they will it'll for the you know it doesn't cost them very much to reach. They're not going to get audiences like the college football championship game or anything of the kind. But they don't have to have those kind of audiences to make it worthwhile for a local advertiser and worthwhile for the the ability to you know spread their word to the to the families to the grandparents in Florida or Mississippi or wherever they might be. So what we're encouraging them to do is it really becomes a it's a two pronged thing. We we think locally the schools have to promote it locally, and we work we we've, we've worked with several. Uh, talking to local advertisers, talking to local school boards. The toughest thing is, you know, public schools have a lot of regulations. And so unless it's 
I'm guessing, and, the, and I don't know if this is going to be true everywhere, uh, that that local advertising will pay the local bills, and the di- distribution will be pretty much their own fan base, if you will, if that's what you call uh, relatives. I don't know that it would ever be. It's not going to challenge, uh, you know, Big East basketball or anything of the kind. Mm-hmm. But it's going to. It, it's just another. It's another local pride thing. Take, you know, City A, whatever it might be, and they have half a dozen high schools, and then they have uh, soccer and whatever else, and then they have their rec leagues that play in the summertime and their men's softball that plays every Friday night or whatever it might be. It's a it's a community, and that's why we call it Hometown Networks. It's, just, it's a network of all of the activities in your own hometown. And you know there are thousands of towns across the across America. Every town's a sports town. Is George Bodenheimer, who's since retired as the chairman of ESPN, he had a book. That's the title of it. Every town's a sports town, and it really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the local high school, the local high schools are the ones that have their kids, their pictures in the newspaper the next morning. Um, they play on Friday nights so that there's no competition, obviously, with the big the big boys. And, and will this ever be as big as an ESPN? Of course not. But it's 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 intended to be local, and that's what the hometown is is all about. And there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of opportunities to, with local race tracks uh, for go kart racing. If you want, you know, somebody decides they want to spend a hundred dollars so that they can watch their kids run around the circle and go go uh, go karts. They can do it. Their own hometown network. They can do what they like. Bill, is there a property now? Now looking back over the course of your career and what you're doing now with hometown networks, uh, a league that you were surprised that took off. Whether it's you know Canadian football, the UFC, uh, that you you were surprised that there was an audience for that, that's been built. Whether it's been in ESPN or elsewhere, and are there also in addition to the, the hyper local things. Uh, some properties that you're looking at to say, man, I think that's going to be the next big one. It just hasn't had the opportunity yet. Well, the one, the ones that was the, that kind of surprised me were, you know, you'll chuckle when I say it, probably Australian rules football. To this mm-hmm. day, I get emails about Australian rules football. Now, I don't have anything to do with ESPN, and people write to me and say. You know, why can't you get that back on the air? We want to see Australian rules football. I think that one caused the most comment. Uh, people expected to see the, you know, the quote, American sports, football, basketball, baseball, and so on. I'm a big baseball fan. I was really pleased when Major League Baseball was able to come on board with ESPN. Uh, looking, looking to the future, I... I don't know. There, there are so many things happening with uh, esports, for example. I don't even know about esports and fantasy sports and how all these things. I just haven't been involved in them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but they, they certainly seem to involve a lot of people. Uh, I, I just, have, I have no idea. I'm at this point trying to keep up with uh, Twitter and Facebook and email, <laughs> and try to watch some games every night. Turns out now I only. I very rarely turn on the TV because I don't have to. I can see anything I want on the computer screen and do several other things at the same time. And, you know, pitch by pitch on baseball is pretty slow. Games take three hours, and 
and they throw 177 pitches, and the other guys throw 143 pitches, and ho-hum. But in between, now, we used to have to sit, and that's all you would do, and now we can do a lot of different things in between. So, so Bill, on that point, I mean, I know the, the premise of Hometown Networks and other businesses like it is, is still to capture localized ad dollars. So it becomes an ad-supported business. Content gets produced cheaply. Distribution goes to an established fan base. Advertising is sold, and uh, at least on the surface, everybody's winning in, uh, in that ecosystem. And that has really been at, at a, a much, much higher level. That's kind of the essence of network sports television from ESPN to CBS sure. to Fox, et cetera. And that's obviously being challenged right now as we see an increasing number of cord cutters, uh, additional, not additional, new and additional over-the-top digital products that most of the rights holders are now offering to customers, particularly younger customers, et cetera. So, so, the, so the kind of essence of the business, this idea that a network can bring together a large audience and support it with advertising is, is not going away anytime soon, but it is being challenged. And if you see some of these subscriber numbers decline and smaller uh, smaller audiences for ad sales, and then uh, in, in certain cases a reduced uh, revenue line for the affiliate fees and things like that, does it feel to you like that shift will continue to the point where the kind of what we like to call the TV industrial complex part of the sports business is going to be challenged enough where it could actually shift to the digital players who have so much scale and so much wealth? I think it can. I, I really be, – because the uh, – you know, you mentioned Amazon, for example, and, and Twitter's involved with the NFL. I don't, I'm not even sure what their involvement is. but Well, not as much. Uh, that, thir- that Thursday night game went to Amazon. So, so that's what oh, okay. That's, that's where that one went. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, the ebb and flow. Just as I can remember when radio was king and television was being bad mouth that they're going to do this. And then it was black and white TV, and then it was color television coming along, and we go, we we can charge more money for color. I don't understand why to this day why. When I started in television, our shows were in black and white, and then suddenly we got color cameras and the advertising race went up. We were the same, same things, same scores, same leagues. But it seems to be the glossier, uh, the bigger, the more better promoted or well-promoted ideas were able to command advertising dollars. And it's always been kind of a nebulous thing based on Nielsen, based on perceived ratings, Uh and as these other uh, other technologies catch on, uh, I think that they, I think that there is going to be a not an advertising crisis where everybody is going to go broke. Certainly, but what you mentioned with the cord cutters and the OTT and so on is is definitely having an impact. But the dollars follow with the people; they they will follow the fans. The fans are the ones the viewers, the users, the listeners to all of the new technologies are the ones that are going to determine just how much advertising is left and how much impact it's going to have on an ESPN. You know, it's still, ESPN at one point was over 100 million subscribers, and now they understand it down into the 80 million. But what they're doing is they're doing, they haven't forgotten technology, certainly. They're doing a lot of streaming as well. Right. And, And I think that, 
I think while the shift in advertising, and it, it's kind of like the ocean waves, they're constantly shifting, but the ocean's still there. Well, the fans are still there. They're just getting their news. They're advertising in a different fashion. Right. I think what's interesting is that you mentioned uh, a number like ESPN, which is obviously the, the most powerful player in television sports with a subscriber base. I think it's in the mid-80s now or something like that, which yeah. sounds like yeah, a I huge think, number. But that, that's kind of what I, I think amazes me and, and other followers of this evolving business is that in terms of the scale and reach of these digital companies, that's not even a big addressable market anymore. So you look at Facebook with close to 2 billion global um, subscribers or, or users, and obviously the reach of something like Amazon, which is now, at least with Amazon Prime, approaching the level of an ESPN. And then, of course, you look at Instagram with a few hundred million, et cetera. You could make the argument that if you were a rights holder and you're looking for bigger reach and, and potentially bigger numbers, if you can figure out the business side, that you'd want to go after the platforms with the biggest reach in the market, which increasingly is, is not the traditional broadcast networks. So I, I think right, right now what we've seen is, is you can have it both ways. You can do your mainstream packages with television companies and then kind of experiment in the digital realm. But it just feels like over time, if the Silicon Valley influences continues to be as powerful and influential as we think it appears to be getting, then you, I suppose you could see that switch. So uh, let me ask a more pointed question on this topic. Do you, do you think when these next rounds of rights deals are up for the major sports that we could see a wholesale shift to a completely different model with one of the Silicon Valley companies? Yeah, I think there I, there will be, and it may be that it may be a Silicon Valley company or it may be a Disney or an ESPN who, I guess for want of a better phrase, kind of a split-screen version of the rights. The traditional rights as ESPN is, is losing their their cable subscribers and increasing their streaming, uh, they will be looking to do deals with the whoever Southeastern Conference, whatever the conference might be, uh, that will incorporate them both. I don't think, let me put it a different way, I don't think the big networks, especially ESPN, are going to go quietly and say, well, that's it, we're just going to, the Amazons and so on of the world are going to do it. They're not going to go quietly. They're, they're already talking and doing things, streaming you know, you probably saw the number that they did something. I want to, I've forgotten what the exact number was, like 52, 52 billion minutes of streaming a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Bob, Iger, Bob Iger was talking about it, and and it was all sports. So so they are, they are well entrenched in the streaming side of things as well, and they have the the uh, assets and the and the and the proper mindset, I guess you might say to just go 100%, you know, as hard after it as they possibly can because at the end of the day, especially with the sports business, it's the fans that drive the whole, that really drive the bus. And if they're going to, if ESPN can't satisfy the fan that wants to see something every 14 seconds on their phone while they're waiting for the bus, then the fan's going to go someplace else, to Amazon or NBC or Fox or whoever. But they're all faced with the same thing, and and I think I think television, as we as I grew up with it, and as you probably remember back 
so many years ago we're not that's that those days are long gone i can remember when television the first time i ever, ever saw a television picture it was a really gall, golly gee whiz moment and now i do more on the phone that's in my hand than television can do ever has, or has mm-hmm. ever done so i i think i think the rights fees they're going to shift but the big players will still have a big chunk of the pot a um, couple more questions before we let you go, Bill. Um, the, the world now is obviously much more global, and although some of the original programming at ESPN was Australian Rules Football and, and kind of shoulder programming you could pick off from around the globe, um, how is, has the global economy or the global consumer affected the television media sports business now, and is, does it surprise you? that there isn't more of a global play now, that people are still just focused on the North American market? It's, it's interesting. I guess that's because we all live here in North America. I know, uh, of course, the uh, soccer has become, uh, soccer and international tennis are big, but for some reason, and I don't know, is that just is that just us who live here on the North American continent uh, that that we like? I, I, I just don't know. I, I do very little, have done very little international traveling, and I've just been, you know, my entire life has been American sports. One of the, one of the things that that kind of is in my, uh, I, I guess my makeup, as I, I I can go all the way back and to the days and the different eras of sports, and I think today's uh, one of the things that today's fan wants to know is what happened five seconds ago. Mm-hmm. And to put it into perspective, they also have to know what happened five years ago or 10 years or 15 or 20 or 50 years ago. Uh, a lot of people today have no idea about the real foundations of of sports, not the broadcasting of sports, but the sport itself and how it was so compelling. And that's what brought television and radio and now streaming and Internet and all, and all the rest of it makes it work. And I, I think I think. Students who want to be involved in the sports business, uh, the business of sports and sports marketing and so on, would do well to uh, understand how it all evolved, not just what it is today and what I can, what I learned five minutes ago. Um, and maybe that's just old-fashioned on my part, but being ha- having history on your side when you are making a sale, I think gives you a much more solid base to, to start from. Great, and that's that's just me. I I don't know. I I have two two very short phrases that I use. You may have seen them online. I see some people re, uh, retweeting them and sending them around. Always be curious and never be complacent. If you're always that's asking great. questions and you never ever, I mean, especially for students, it sometimes it's tough to think. I'm going to have to call who? You know, Mr. So and So or Mrs. So and So. Don't be don't be concerned. You, you should always ask questions. Ask, ask questions of your peers, of your professors, of your business partners. Uh, what, what's the worst thing that can happen? We you know they're going you're going to get an answer you don't like. Well, that's the way it goes. And if you're you can never be complacent. The intriguing thing about those two, and the way it's so easy for me to remember, is I worked both at an ABC station and an NBC station. So ABC, NBC. Always be curious, never be complacent is 
something that I keep in the back of my mind whenever I start a new project and just keep asking questions and good things happen. Wow, that's that's good advice, Joe. That's and and Bill preempted our, our one of our last questions about career yep. advice, but I think that's that sums it up really, really, really well. Bill, let me ask you one more business question before we go into kind of a couple of final things. Um, sure. Because I, I wanted to mention this before, but we didn't get to it specifically. So there's been an increasingly um, dynamic integration of technology into sports television, and we've watched it evolve from. Uh, the very early days when you were starting ESPN, where there was essentially no other than the actual uh, satellite technology, there wasn't any integration of um, special graphics, special data, et cetera. And now we're looking at a plethora of technology activations within the broadcast. What do you think of all the developments in recent years and where it's going? Because it seems like it's it's on this path just to, to keep outdoing itself year after year. Oh, I'm I'm uh, I enjoy seeing all those things. You mentioned all of the different things that we can incorporate in the broadcast. I mean, replay was a big deal. I mean, that was a huge deal. And now, not only do you get replay, but you get a replay, the video replay, and you can find out in an instant that the it was a 98.5 mile an hour fastball that left the bat at 115.3 miles per hour and reached. You know, I mean, that's. I'm I'm a statistical nut, so I like that kind of stuff. And the more the more innovation they put into the broadcast, I think not only is it fun, but I think it's necessary because if if you're not doing it, your competitor is going to be doing it. So the fans, you know, the fans are going to constantly be thirsty for more and more innovation. And they want more and more innovation, and perhaps at less cost. And with the competition and the and the technology, the cost to deliver any kind of a an event or a, a replay of an event or something is going to continue to become cheaper to deliver and quicker to deliver, and with more detail around it. I I, I really I enjoy all this all the new stuff because, as I say. My my first, I was golly gee whiz when I first saw the first black and white TV picture, and now with all of these things, this is great. Cool. So, Bill, as as we uh, wrap it up, we always have a couple questions that we like to ask everyone, especially given the fact that um, a lot of the listeners to our podcast are students. So, two questions. One is, who do you follow? How do you stay on top of everything that you're doing, especially since you're always kind of reinventing your business? And then, in addition to those two little quotes. Is there something else that comes along that you always tell people looking to get involved in, whether it's sports or entertainment or media? So how do you stay involved? And then your kind of parting shot for for in, uh, information. Well, staying involved, obviously, is I have uh, two, two computers and a phone, and it seems that uh, everybody in the world can find me and, and, and is, is publishing things. And I uh purely for my own pleasure I'm uh, I follow the Yankees and I follow the New York Giants because I lived up in that area for so many years and I used to follow the White Sox but now that they're down at the bottom I was born in Chicago so I don't follow, I don't follow them so <laughs> that's just that's my my uh those are just my personal teams to watch um business wise I'm I'm curious obviously as to Sounds odd, but Disney is a player in the sports business because of their ownership of ESPN. 
So mm-hmm. I'm curious as to what Bob Iger and company are talking about and what their innovative ideas might be and where where things will go. Um, and and really, other than uh, obviously all of the things about streaming that I can find out about and hometown networks is occupying my time. Um, that that's about it. I'm. Uh, I I just don't have time or the inclination to be doing quite as many things as I might have done back in say 40 years ago or maybe 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. I I have always been curious, and, and this is not the, the the six words, but I have always I have always thought and looking at business, and I, I see so many business plans that mission statements might be two or three or four pages long or two or three or four paragraphs long. And I think if you can think in terms of what is your goal, as a, what is your mission statement, if you want to define it that way, what is it you want to do? Well, I want to do sports on television 24 hours a day. Well, that turned out to be now ESPN says their mission statement is to serve sports fans anytime, anywhere. Very brief, six words. I think hmm. that if you're deciding what you want to do and where you're going, it's a good idea to have a lot of a lot of different thoughts, a lot of different avenues open to you, but you really should pick something and focus and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to let up. I'm going to stay focused and make it happen. And unless you have that perseverance, if you have an idea and you go to somebody and you say, well, I've got this idea, but I kind of don't know, maybe it's not. That you, chances are you're probably not going to get an investment from that person or whatever it was you were trying to get him to do. But if you go in self-confident, positive in all of your statements and ask the right questions and, and act on the right answers, that you, and act on the answers that you get, you can be a success in anything you want to do. I think this is the greatest country on earth and everything – that we wanted uh, want to do we can do all we we have no our own wor- our uh, we are our own worst enemy when it comes to not following through and finishing a project that we set out for it so if you want to go forward into the world and do a, a network do a i don't know a real estate career whatever it might be uh you have to be positive and be confident in yourself ask the questions and go get it done well said very well said. We didn't ask you, Bill, because I'm looking at your ESPN account now. I was reading it before. Um, let's uh, just tell everybody where they might find you and hometown uh, networks on, in, in, the, yep. uh, in the Internet biz. Yeah, it's hometownnetworkstv.tv. Uh, the, well, we, got a whole, we have a whole bunch of things. Of course, you can find me at ESPNfounder.com. And there's a uh, a book about ESPN, of course, the Sports Junkies Rejoice, and that's available at either either my website or Amazon. Um, and other than that, you know, I'm I'm on all those things. I'm on Facebook and and Twitter and Instagram, and <laughs> I don't even know what all of them are. But believe it or not, when I when we look at Twitter and so on, I end up doing 99% of that whole Twitter account myself, which is kind of surprising even me because it's, I don't know how it works, but I manage to get through it sometimes, most of the time. Well, that that's good, and that's one of the advantages of Twitter, I think, where you're, especially when um, 
you figure out the, the, the real people who have something to say and something to share can be a very valuable platform, as uh, Joe and I know and we talk about it all the time. Um, and then um, if someone – are you doing any investing? Like do you, do you talk to entrepreneurs in the business who are looking for guidance or perhaps yeah, money or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, I do. I get a lot of questions about that, and I talk to them and, and try to encourage. And, and uh, from time to time, we have been involved with them. And, in, in yeah, fact, that's, okay. that's really the way the Hometown Networks thing began and, and evolved. Uh, I'm happy to do that and, of course, speak at various universities and businesses uh, about very, you know, all, all of these things as well. It's, uh, That's great. You know, you guys are going to have me around for a long time. All right. Well, that's a, good, that's a good thing for everybody in this business. And thank you so much, Bill. On, on behalf of Columbia, on behalf of Joe, um, it was an honor to have you on our show. You're one of the legends of the business. Uh, your story is and it should be an inspiration to everybody listening, everybody, you know, whether they're young or old, because it just goes to show you that with, um, with a big idea and some hustle and that fearlessness that you obviously brought to the, to the story in the beginning, great things can happen. So Bill Rasmussen, the founder of ESPN and an accomplished author, a speaker, an entrepreneur, and a passionate sports fan, Looking forward, to, um, looking forward to all the things that are happening with Hometown Networks, his newest venture. Um, thank you so much, Bill. It was really a pleasure having you on the show. And, Joe, uh, thank you for uh, another good one. Well, you're, you're welcome. I really enjoyed it and look forward to talking to you all again. Okay. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to this latest episode of The Cusp Show. Joe and I were so pleased to have on Bill Rasmussen, one of the, uh, one of the great greats in the business. So uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time on Cusp. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and the host is Joe Fabrito. My production assistant this week is Columbia student Reese Eisenman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. You can also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash The Cusp Show. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at CU underscore S. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.